This is Alan Johnson, pastor of Old Peachtree Presbyterian Church in Duluth, Georgia. The Bible is God's Word. It describes itself as living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. Therefore, any encounter with the Bible is a momentous thing because it never leaves us unchanged. My prayer for you as you hear this message is that the Holy Spirit will use it in your life to inform your mind, to feed your soul, and to help you grow in your faith in Christ. Please take your Bibles and turn with me this evening to Jeremiah chapter 10. Jeremiah chapter 10, we're looking this this evening at verses 17 through 25. Last time in Jeremiah, we were looking at uh, the first half of this chapter, uh, which is taken up with their idolatry, the foolishness of it, the perversity of it, the futility of it. Well, tonight we are looking at a passage that addresses uh, in pretty stark terms the consequences for Judah, for Jerusalem, of their idolatry and their infidelity to their covenant Lord. We begin reading in verse 17. Hear the word of God. Gather up your bundle from the ground, O you who dwell under siege. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time, and I will bring distress on them that they may feel it. Woe is me because of my hurt. My wound is grievous, but I said truly, this is an affliction and I must bear it. My tent is destroyed and all my cords are broken. My children have gone from me and they are not. There is no one to spread my tent again and to set up my curtains. For the shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. A voice, a rumor, behold, it comes, a great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a lair of jackals. I know, O Lord, that the way of a man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and on the peoples that call not on your name. For they have devoured Jacob, they have devoured him and consumed him, and have laid waste his habitation. Let's pray. Our Father, open our eyes. Give us clear minds in this late hour of the day to think about your word, think your thoughts after you. Father, we pray that you would instruct us and build us up as we study your word tonight. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. When Barbara and I accepted the church's call, Old Peachtree's call, God's call, to come here to Duluth, Georgia, we were very excited and, I'll admit, somewhat apprehensive uh, but we also um, recognized how difficult it would be to say goodbye to where we were, uh, where I was an assistant out of seminary in South Carolina. Um, we'd come to love the church, come to love the town. Uh, and so leaving was hard. It was hard to say goodbye. 
But uh, perhaps the most difficult moment of all was after I had already started here, and we had our house on the market there in Clinton, South Carolina, which is not a small town, not a large market. We were a little concerned about how long it might take to sell our house there. And uh, in fact, it sold in about two months, uh, which was a real answer to prayer, uh, some of your prayers, in fact, at that time. Uh, but I can still remember when it was time to finally leave the house. Um, we had gone through, we made sure we had everything, made sure we had cleaned everything, and uh, we left the obligatory broom there in the kitchen. And then finally it was time to close the door and leave. And I'm not ashamed to admit to you that Barbara and I just held each other and bawled having to leave our house. It was our first house. It was a nice little house. Uh, we had some good memories in that house, uh, youth group events, Bible studies, all kinds of things. It was the house that we brought our firstborn child home to. It was the house he'd ridden his little ride toys around the island in. I uh, paid all of $56,000 for that house. Um, so it was, it, was, it was hard to finally close the door, have it click shut, and walk away. But as I think about that, in light of this passage, and you've had that experience too, I'm sure you know what it is to leave a house that you've grown attached to, uh, as we think about what that feels like, in light of a passage like this, we can begin to appreciate a little bit what these words meant to the residents of Jerusalem who were leaving their home, leaving their homes, uh, leaving the residents of their ancestors for many generations, perhaps, in the most desperate and dire of circumstances. The enemy is at the gate. As Jeremiah gives this vision, these words, it's depicting the arrival of the enemy at the gate, the beginning of siege, the need to run, the need to flee, the need to escape before things got even worse. The siege is on, the game is up. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner summarizes the situation this way. He says, suddenly there is a sheer drop from the pinnacle to the depths, from the thought of Israel as God's own treasure to the pathetic sight of her as a refugee leaving the ruins for the road. God was very, very patient with Judah. God was very very patient with Jerusalem. But his patience has a limit. And they tested him to the limit. And now the enemy is at the gates. This passage also gives us a very uh, personal view of Jeremiah's own heart as he writes about these things, as he declares these things. And really, as he describes them, he passes through three stages as he's wrestling with the reality of this prophecy that he himself has to deliver. The first stage is that of realizing the reality of rejection from the land. The reality of that becomes clear with the enemy at the gate. You know, think about it was one thing. 
to have something in the future that, that was a threat or perhaps a possibility was one thing. But to actually see the enemy at the gates, actually see enemy forces scattered over the countryside, to hear reports of cities that were destroyed as the enemy came closer and closer, and finally realize that it's here, very powerful, dismaying thing and the reality of it, that God really is going to eject his people, to forcibly remove them from the land, was a very sobering Reality. They should have known he would do it. They saw it with the northern kingdom of Israel. Recall how Israel split north and south uh, after uh, King Solomon, when his son Rehoboam became king and cracked down, uh, increased the burden on the people, and and it split the kingdom. And you had the ten tribes in the north who selected Jeroboam, son of Nebat, as their king. And he set the standard for a pattern, a a long line of of evil, idolatrous kings. Uh, And then you had the the, the line of David continuing on in Jerusalem and in the south. Uh, Bad kings for the most part. A couple of very good ones, some that were okay, but uh, also several that were pretty bad including Manasseh, who was extremely wicked later on in Judah's history, reigned for over 50 years, had that that long a time to lead Judah into idolatry. Interestingly enough, repenting at the end of his reign, and Josiah comes along with his reforms afterward, and yet, even with Manasseh's repentance, even with Josiah's many years of rule and and repudiating the idolatry and bringing Israel back. You know, they found, found the book of the law and the temple, the reinstitution of the Passover. Even that was not enough that God had already determined under Manasseh that that was it. He prolonged their time, but they should have known because Assyria, that northern kingdom, fell, or, or Israel, that northern kingdom, fell to the Assyrians, uh, fell to them, captured by them, taken into captivity. So yes, they should have known it would happen. But the reality is driven home when Babylon is at the gates. In verses 17 through 18, you see this. 17. Gather up your bundle from the ground, O you who dwell under siege. In other words, pick up your packs, pick up your bundles, pick up your stuff. It's time to leave. It's time to close the door and get out of town while you still can. For thus says the Lord, Behold, I am slinging out the inhabitants of the land at this time. Not in the future. Not one day or turn or else, but now, at this time, I am bringing this to pass. And not just removing the words in the ESV captures. I'm slinging them. That's the word that was used for a slingshot. I am picking them up and throwing them out of the land. I am slinging them out. And I will bring distress on them that they may feel it. They're going to feel deep within them the reality of what the Lord has done. You know, it's interesting, we read about that. And, and the warnings that the prophets sent must have seemed, at least to some, to be remote, unlikely, to others, a joke, laughable. How many people think of God's judgment the same way now? 
You know, even for Christians, the idea of, of Christ's return, the idea of the final judgment has an air of unreality about it. We say that's going to happen. But the difficulty of grasping what that will look like, how that will so disrupt uh, not just our world, but our universe, makes it seem distant, seem remote. The kind of thing that we cover in sermons or Sunday school lessons, but really doesn't have a whole lot to do with the real world. That's exactly how Judah felt about the warnings of Jeremiah and others. That's, that's ridiculous. Or, well, maybe not. To, that would never happen. Why would God do that to us? We're his people, regardless of who we worship. The reality of God's judgment, the reality of their ejection from the land is that first stage, as it becomes not just thinkable, but is happening before their very eyes. You know, it's interesting with the the economy the way it is, the comparisons to the Great Depression of, of the 30s. And, you know, we've heard our our grandparents, parents perhaps, great-grandparents speak of the Depression. And I certainly don't think by what we've seen, at least at this point, that we're anywhere close to the kind of suffering and misery that our nation suffered under all of that. But it has helped to kind of see what that must have been like. You know, it brings a little more of an air of reality to that experience that goes beyond black and white photos in your old history textbook. You know, And in the Great Depression of the 30s, the stock market crashed, yes, but most of the damage occurred in that the stock market kept dropping, dropping, slowly dropping. After that initial crash, it kept getting lower and lower and lower. Brings it home. It makes it more real. Well, that's what Jeremiah experienced. And we need to recognize that the judgment of God is not just something in an old textbook, but a reality. God has judged before, and he will judge again. And the necessity to be prepared, the necessity to take refuge in Christ, the necessity to repent of our sins and flee to the provision that God has given us in Christ. So, first stage, reality of rejection. Second stage is the depth of anguish in Jeremiah's own heart. Now, here we sort of go first person. Jeremiah here in verse 19 and uh, 20 and 21 is speaking of his own reaction to this. And the first thing he does is he says, Woe is me because of my hurt. First reaction is, is heartache, just pain inside. Because Jeremiah was not some dispassionate observer. Uh, not some calloused declarer of judgment. He was one of the people who were experiencing the very thing he prophesied. He loved his people. He loved Jerusalem. And it pained him deeply to see what was happening. You see very little, see, I told you so here. In fact, none in this passage. See, I was right. See, all you false prophets were wrong. You know, hot dog, it's going to happen just the way I said it was going to happen. No. Woe is me because of my hurt. This was a man who very much cared about the people to whom he spoke judgment. It wasn't just Jeremiah venting his spleen at them because of their sins, but a deep concern 
a deep identification with them. My wound is grievous. I said that truly this is an affliction and I must bear it. Not just you must bear it, I must bear it. Jeremiah sees himself as suffering with his people, and so there's this heartache. There's also a huge sense of loss. Now, verse 20 could be taken personally, and it may be personal, but I think it also has a broader application to speaking of Jerusalem. He says, my tent is destroyed. It's the the image of the nomad who travels, who's got a tent that he lives in. The tent is destroyed. All my cords that hold it, support it, are broken, so it's collapsed, it's destroyed. My children have gone from me. They are not. There is no one to spread my tent again and set up my curtains. Now, it's possible Jeremiah is speaking personally of his own family, but more likely, I think, and certainly the broader application here, is he's speaking of Jerusalem, his tent, his home is destroyed, and the things that support it, the cords are snapped, they're broken, it's destroyed. The people of it have gone, the children of Zion, the, the daughter of Zion, as we saw in the passage this morning, are gone. They're not. There's no one there to rebuild, no one to set up the tent again, no one to put things right again, because the Babylonians deported the residents. They left a few poor people there just to kind of occupy it, maintain, but a lot of people were gone. The city was desolate. There was tremendous loss. So there was heartache. There was this sense of loss. And there was also frustration for Jeremiah. It's a frustration that you might identify with. The shepherds are stupid and do not inquire of the Lord. Therefore, they have not prospered and all their flock is scattered. The shepherds here are the leaders. Political, king, who unfortunately in many cases was setting the standard for Rebellion against the Lord and leading the people in that, although in Judah, a few exceptions to that. The shepherds were the king and other political leaders. The shepherds were the religious leaders who allowed this idolatry, who did not join with the prophets in calling the people to faithfulness and calling the people to repentance and calling them to turn from their idols. No. The shepherds are stupid do not, and do not inquire of the Lord. And for that reason, they've not prospered. For that reason, the flock is scattered. So for Jeremiah, this is very personal. There's that, that heartache that he himself feels. There's that sense of loss and desolation as he sees the city destroyed. And he experienced that. He witnessed that. The book of Lamentation is his, his personal grieving, his, his personal response to what the Lord did. Jerusalem, And then the sense of frustration that the leaders of the people did not fulfill their responsibility. You know, as we look at this, and even the, the anguish that Jeremiah himself felt as he wrote about what was going on, um, we can't help but feel much the same way. Uh, as we look at the church around the world, church in our own country today, um, we should feel a sense of pain with the unfaithfulness in so many ways of the church. It's, uh, it's, it's unwise pursuit of apparent relevance. It's willingness to compromise the gospel. Or in more extreme cases, in some churches, some denominations, just flat out 
rebelling against God's word and its teaching, especially in the areas of our sexuality and areas of marriage, uh, just complete disregard for what God said. And, and it makes it, it should make us angry, but it should also make us grieve that the church in so many places is in those circumstances. And even to look at ourselves and our own church and to see what we should be that so often we are not. Uh, but that sense of personal identification, a sense of grief, a sense of frustration, that too many are crying peace, peace, when there is no peace. So that's what we see here uh, in the first place, the sense of the, the dawning of the reality of, of God's judgment, the rejection from the land, the, the personal depth of anguish that Jeremiah felt. But there's also a third stage here as Jeremiah witnesses what's happening, expresses his own grief over what's happening, and then he does precisely what the leaders would not, what the shepherds would not. He says they do not inquire of the Lord, and then Jeremiah does just that. The third phase is that prayer to the Lord for leniency, for mercy, even in judgment. Verse 22 The enemy is at the gate. A voice, a rumor, a report, a news bulletin. Behold, it comes. A great commotion out of the north country to make the cities of Judah a desolation, a lair of jackals. And that's exactly what happened as Babylon came in, Babylonian army, Nebuchadnezzar. You know, they come in and uh, one city after another is, is... Captured, it falls, the citizens are deported, and it draws closer and closer to Jerusalem. The enemy at the gate, this noise, the report is the enemy is on the way. They're drawing closer daily. But then there's this recognition, this wonderful recognition, that even so, God is sovereign. He's sovereign over enemy armies. Look at verse 23. I know, O Lord... That the way of man is not in himself, that it is not in man who walks to direct his steps. What does Jeremiah do here? Well, he does what we all should do when we're faced with a difficult situation or faced with uncertainty. He goes back to first principles. What do I know for sure? And knowing that, how do I stand on that? to make a decision about how I should go from here. What does Jeremiah know? Well, if he knows anything, he knows this. I know, O Lord, the way of man is not in himself, and it's not in man who walks to direct his steps. In other words, ultimately, man is not in charge. Nebuchadnezzar is not in charge. His army is not in charge. God is in charge. God is sovereign. Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 11, asks, What are God's works of providence? And the answer they supply is that God's works of providence are his most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all their actions. Can't get much more comprehensive than that. In other words, God's in control of everything, over every person, over every creature, and over every action, including the actions of enemy armies. Do we recognize, ultimately, it's not in man, it's not in you or me to direct our steps? And it's interesting that Jeremiah here doesn't just make that a general thing. Well, you know, God kind of rules over the big picture, and the details just 
work out. Look at what he says. The way of a man, not just people generally, but a man, a single person. His way is not in himself. It's not in man, and that is more general, who walks to direct his steps. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God really is in control over what happens in your life? Not just over what you do, but what others do, what others might do to you? Or events or occurrences that take place in your life? You know, Jeremiah sees the threat of the destruction of his beloved Jerusalem, which of course had emotional ties, but tremendous spiritual significance for Israel. Historical significance. And it was all about to just be leveled. What does he do? He says, I go back and I know, Lord, that you're in control. Whatever happens, you're in control. Many of you are familiar with the name Ulrich Zwingli. Zwingli was a Swiss pastor and theologian in the days of the Protestant Reformation in Europe. And he lived in a day and during the Reformation, uh, of course, when illness could be in many ways more threatening than it is today without uh, having access to modern antibiotics and all that kind of thing. But he also lived during days uh, when plague, bubonic plague, would, would sometimes break out and be rampant. And Zwingli nearly died from the plague. He was at death's door, and yet he recovered. And afterward, as, as Zwingli thought about that experience and where he was, he, he wrote a poem that kind of expressed uh, his thoughts. Help, Lord God, help in this trouble. I think death is at the door. Stand before me, Christ, for thou hast overcome him. To thee I cry, if it is thy will, take out the dart which would wound me, or that lets me have an hour's rest or repose. Wilt thou, however, that death take me in the midst of my days, so let it be. Do what you will, I lack nothing. Thy vessel am I, to make or break altogether. Is that your attitude toward the Lord? Is it your attitude not only with yourself, but with your family, with your children, with your health, with your employment, your business? Thy vessel am I to make or break altogether. Or as Job put it, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. But also, not only recognizing the enemy is at the gate and God's sovereignty in that, He does plea for mercy in the midst of discipline. Look at verse 24. Notice what he says. Lord, teach your people. Correct them. You know, yes, they've gone astray. Look what he says. Correct me, O Lord, but in justice, not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. This plea for discipline. Uh, mercy in God's discipline and his chasing. It's Notice when he says, correct me, but injustice. You know, we sometimes said, don't ask for justice, ask for grace. You don't want justice, you want grace. Well, when Jeremiah is saying that, he's essentially asking for mercy. Because notice he says, correct me, but injustice, not in your anger. In other words, not in your wrath, but in what is right. In what would be helpful, lest you bring me to nothing. 
Discipline is an important part of chastening. You know, when God is at work, uh, when He works in our lives, um, He disciplines us. Hebrews speaks to that. Hebrews 12. Um, My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by Him. The Lord disciplines the one He loves and chastises every son whom He receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. What son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. And he goes on to reflect that God's wisdom in discipline is for our good, that we might share in his holiness. The moment all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. That's what Jeremiah is saying here. Correct me, discipline me, but not in your anger, rather in your justice, in what is right to make me what you want me to be, not to bring me to nothing. You know, it's striking in 2 Samuel 24. So it's a mysterious passage because it begins in verse 1, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel and he incited David, the king, against them saying, go, number Israel and Judah. That's interesting. King David says to Joab, his commander, go out and take a census. And Joab, who's a rather ambivalent figure as David's uh, commander of the army, uh, sometimes he seems good, sometimes he seems bad. He has his ups and downs. But it's Joab who says, wait a minute, are you sure you want to do that? David says, yes, do it. And then verse 10, this is 2 Samuel 24, verse 10, David's heart struck him after he'd numbered the people. And David said to the Lord, I have sinned greatly in what I have done, but now, O Lord, please take away the iniquity of your servant, for I have done very foolishly. And the Lord sends a prophet named Gad, uh, David's seer, to David. And the Lord says, three things I offer you, David. Choose one of them that I may do it to you. This is kind of the equivalent of the parent saying, son, go get me a switch to beat you with, you know. Um, Pick your poison, pick your punishment. So Gad came to David and told him and said to him, shall three years of famine come to you in your land? Option number one. Or will you flee three months before your foes while they pursue you? Option number two. David certainly had his taste of that under Saul. Or, option number three, shall there be three days pestilence in your land? Now consider and decide what answer I shall return to him who sent me. So three years of famine, three months of fleeing an enemy, three days of pestilence. Then David said to Gad, I am in great distress. Let us fall into the hand of the Lord, for his mercy is great. But let me not fall into the hand of man. So the Lord sent a pestilence on Israel from morning till the appointed time. Interesting choice. Three days of pestilence. But the reasoning was this. I don't want to fall into the hands of man. I don't want three years of famine. I don't want three three months of running from a foe. Three days pestilence. Now, the famine could be seen as from the Lord, too, three years. And David really is sort of ambiguous in his answer. He just says, let us fall into the hand of the Lord, but not in the hand of man. 
because his mercy is great. And that's essentially what Jeremiah is saying here. Yeah. Correct me, but not in your anger, lest you bring me to nothing. Throwing himself even in judgment on the mercy of God, just as David did. Well, then finally, as he's interceding in this third phase of dealing with this, he, he points a finger at the pagan nations, especially the one that's coming against them. Pour out your wrath on the nations that know you not, and on the peoples that call not on your name. For they have devoured Jacob. They've devoured him and consumed him and laid waste his habitation. Perhaps with an eye toward the Assyrians who destroyed Samaria and, and Israel, but especially toward Babylon. But it's nations, plural. Lord, even as you look at us, even as you look at our rebellion, look at these other nations. And there is some irony in that because as we've already seen, it seems that Judah, it seems that Jerusalem is very much one of those nations who does not know the Lord. That they themselves are one of those nations that don't call on the name of the Lord. But he's looking at the pagan nations around them. But he does have to look at himself and look at Judah first because they qualify under that first half, as we've seen in our study of Jeremiah, as you know from your study of the Old Testament. This was a time for weeping. This was a time for saying goodbye to their homes, to their city, to all that was normal, all that they had known, because the Lord was finally bringing fulfillment to his promises of his judgment. You know, as we read this passage, we look at what it has to say to us today. Uh, We do need to recognize that uh, we are identified with the church, with God's people, uh, certainly by the world. Uh, We should also feel the same kind of grief and torment of soul that Jeremiah felt. But we don't ultimately let it cause us despair. We go to God, we intercede, we pray, Lord, yes, chasten, yes, discipline, but do so in justice, not in anger, for correction, not for destruction. Have mercy on us. But ultimately, too, we need to bring that down to our own lives, to our own hearts. Because you see, every one of us is a walking microcosm of Jerusalem. Within our hearts, there are, are, are idolatrous impulses, varying degrees of faithfulness, times when we are obedient, times when we are disobedient. We need to pray that God would give us the grace of genuine repentance, real heartbreak over the sin in our lives, over the times when we've been stupid in not shepherding ourselves and governing ourselves. But we also come back to the Lord and say, Yes, Lord, the enemy of sin is at the gate, but I come to you. I know ultimately you are sovereign. Correct me in your mercy. And pour out your wrath on all that truly is your enemy and the enemy of your people. And the good news is that the Lord has already done that in the cross. There his judgment on your enemy and mine, on sin, has been poured out. But we also need to remember that just as God finally did bring the enemy against Jerusalem, that we know that a day of judgment awaits And just as surely as Jerusalem was reduced to rubble, that day of judgment is coming. Let's pray. 
Our Father, we thank you for this portion of your word, a somber portion indeed, and yet, Lord, one filled with hope, because we know you are sovereign, and we know that even in judgment you have provided mercy for us in Christ. Lord, he is our refuge, he is our strong tower, he is our place of safety, and Lord, we have taken refuge in him. Father, we pray that you would be at work in our own hearts, that we would love you, we would be faithful to you, by your grace, your spirit, and your word, we would put sin and rebellion to death in our own hearts, because, Lord, we want to be your faithful people. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.